Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 7. Today's topic, nostalgia. Hey everyone, we are back at the hotel bar after a long day of conference papers. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Lee and Ammon. What's up? What's going on, Shannon? Shannon? It's good to see both. Good to hear you both. So uh, let's get started. Ammon, what are you going to have to drink and what session did you just get out of? So I would like to have the second least expensive red wine on the menu. Nice. We'll see what that is. I'm sure it's a good vintage. And I just got out of a very timely session, although it's about an old book. It was called Sometimes Watching Isn't Helping, Mike Mulligan and Antecedents to the Crisis in the Suez Canal. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. All right, Lee, what about you? Uh, I'm going to have my usual Fireball and Diet Coke. I just got out of a really short session, honestly. The title of the paper was Jordan Peterson is not a good philosopher. And actually, <laughs> actually, that was also the argument of the papers. <laughs> the title was the whole session. It works. It works. What about well, you, I think, Shannon? I think I'm going to have a, a glass of champagne because I got Ooh. vaccinated and I'm super excited about it. So I'm going to celebrate. Nice. I think that makes all of us now, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, I just got out of a session called Dude, Who Stole My Umbrella? A reevaluation of Ashton Kutcher's rereading of Derrida. (laughs) It was intense. It was intense. Okay. So actually, Shannon is going to be taking the lead on today's conversation, but I want to give her a proper intro. So... talking about what a way to start off a conversation about nostalgia takes me back absolutely yeah you know i really wanted us to talk about this for so many reasons but one of the main reasons is is i just think that nostalgia permeates so much of our experience and i just think it's worthwhile giving it a fair philosophical conversation at a bar agreed also think that we have gone through a moment in politics where nostalgia has been so front and center. A lot of discussion with the movement of MAGA and Trump and how that was kind of a a play on these nostalgic feelings that may or may not have been pure in nature, but also sort of with our current president and the way that he uses nostalgia and the kind of other side of that movement that we catch. Uh, That's just a bunch of malarkey. (laughs) So I actually wanted to give a shout out to our good friends, David and Ellie in the podcast Overthink, because they did a really nice job talking about nostalgia in one of their episodes. And in particular, they really take on what is going on with the movement of Make America Great Again and what that's playing on and a lot of the mythology that it's playing on. Yeah, that really was a good episode on their podcast. And You know, we're all three Gen Xers here, so we should probably tell our listeners if they want to hear a younger, fresher, more millennial version of the take on nostalgia, they should go listen to Ellie and David. But also, seriously, we are such a fan and so happy that there are so many great philosophy podcasts popping up all over the interwebs. So please do take a second and go uh, subscribe to Overthink Podcast. Absolutely. So what do you all think about nostalgia what do you think nostalgia is? How would you even 
define it before I ask you both the question that I want to ask you, which is how do you see it playing in politics right now? Well, Shannon, the Greek <laughs> word nostos <laughs> means home. <laughs> and alga is, of course, the root root for pain. So I would define it as pain that one feels as one thinks about one's home. So, ooh, it's a very Odyssean answer there. <laughs> well, I, I mean, like Odysseus just appeared and gave me this definition. I love it. I was going just for didactic. So if we got oh. all the way to Odyssean, I'm very happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's play on this notion of missing one's home, because that is such an interesting idea in political discourse. What yeah. is the home? that we are nostalgic for. Clearly we see that there's this kind of nostalgia for this white 50s boomer landscape that is at the heart of Make America Great and Trumpism. But what kind of nostalgia do you see at work in Biden, Grandpa yeah. Joe? I mean, that's such, that's such a good question. I have to say, and I'm going to get hate mail for this, but I've been very impressed with Biden's presidency so far. I will say that. Much I know I don't want to admit it, but I kind I know, of have too. But he was none of our first choices, right? <laughs> was and he anyone's first choice? Apparently some people he was. But one of the things that really last year highlighted to me it was the sharper and sharper division between liberals and the left, whatever the hell that means, which I think all of us in some way, shape, or form belong to. But I was struck over and over again by the nostalgia coming from so much liberal and moderate discourse around Biden. I mean, right. he ran a campaign that was entirely... Whether it was brilliant or not it remains to be seen, but his campaign was really a very low-key campaign entirely premised on the idea of, don't you wish you were back at brunch again? Which is, a, <laughs> which is another form of nostalgia that is aesthetically much superior to the nostalgia of the 50s and politically much superior, but still very much traded on people's fond memories of the Obama presidency. I mean, he ran as nostalgic on Obama 2.0. And I think for liberals, I think that was a very strong and compelling message. For me, it was less so, but it clearly it clearly resonated with a lot of people. So. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think that Biden's campaign and presidency so far has been nostalgic, largely in the sense that Biden is a sort of proxy for Obama. But I do think that the particular thing that he's capitalizing on is our yearning to return to a time when people could just work together across the aisle. Yes. And I think yeah. that, unfortunately, what we forget is that did not happen. That never existed. <laughs> yeah, that's... But that really does get to, I imagine, what we're going to talk a lot about today, which is that often what we're nostalgic for, there was no origin to that thing, that, that it never actually existed as we recall it or as we remember it. So it's not really a returning to anything it's a creation of something to which we want to believe we are returning. So why do so many people believe that? In a lot of ways, you know, we're in terrain that I think this idea that origins are often back to our origins episode. So shout back to that. We can get nostalgic <laughs> for that episode. That origins are often fictional. Why politically are they so compelling? And as you guys are pointing out, across traditional ideological lines. I think that whatever nostalgia is at the heart of it is always a sort of smoothing over everything that sucks 
and an amplification of, yeah, of, yeah. of feelings mm -hmm. of peace and of being at home. Because in the present, you never really feel at home. There's always a kind of disjuncture. You're always sort of disjointed as you are in the present, trapped between the past and the future. But when you feel nostalgia, it's like, oh, there was a time when things made sense, when things felt good, when there was a kind of peace. And so even though there never was a time in the United States when right and left got along and worked really well together, there's still this feeling like, oh, but there must have been a time because then that would be a very comfortable, nice place to be. Yeah, I think there's also a sense that we have this belief that things were simpler in the mm -hmm. past and that they're complicated and they're messy now. And I often think about this when people say, oh, I wish that I could have lived in Renaissance times or I wish I could have, you know, I want to go back off the grid or whatever. And I think, really? Like before- Really? Poop in the streets? <laughs> right. You don't really right. want to do that. <laughs> right. Before vaccines, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there is, again, this kind of manufacturing of a simpler time that- doesn't have all of the messiness that we're having to navigate in our presence. Even the way we talk about childhood, I, I think we'll talk about, oh, back when the United States was younger and the birth of it from this revolutionary move. And that's when things really were clear. The founding fathers going, again, back to our discussion of origins. It was so clear and simple and all they had to do was just put it together and that made something happen. But that also oversimplifies that childhood is not simple. It's very chaotic and complex and confusing and difficult. And yet on a personal level, you look back and you're like, oh, but when I was a child, things were simpler, but they weren't. Just like when I look back in the past of the country, things were simpler, but they weren't. I think that the appeal of Biden is more than just an appeal to Obama and the Obama years, although it's very clearly that. But there's also something just really about this grandfatherly presence that he has. I'm yeah, here yeah. to sort mm -hmm. of make you feel like your grandpa made you feel, which is things are going to be OK and we're all going to get along. And it's just a matter of putting some things in order and then the family's going to be reunited. And I think he plays very heavily on that. And I think it speaks to the country now because of the trauma of the four years of Trump. But I wonder, is that just a basic political technique that a lot of politicians use in order to make us feel this nostalgia for these figures in our past that made things feel OK? I'm worried that it is. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I but it's interesting because, you know, so supposedly 2020 was going to be, you know, the, the country has moved further and further. The country is more diverse. The country is supposedly more open to, on a variety of indexes, a more, a more progressive, a more left message. And yet, ultimately, the message that the winning team went with was... No, no, we'll, we'll be the nice grandpa instead of the mean grandpa. Right, right, right. And yeah. it, 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 I don't know. I mean, is nostalgia always conservative? Why does it have to be the enemy of, or does it have to be the enemy of these sort of more progressive impulses? I was thinking when preparing to have this conversation with you both that nostalgia has never been a motivating force in my political sensibility. Yeah, me like, I always feel like my political sensibility is very 
future looking like what is the promise and that's why the first time around i was a huge obama fan i felt like this is someone who is forward looking and who realizes that there's nothing nostalgic about american history or there's nothing about american history that we should be nostalgic about at least as far as politics is concerned we need to be moving forward there are a lot of changes that that need to be made there's a lot of good that needs to be done so in that sense i do agree with ammon that nostalgia as a motivating political force is fundamentally conservative what's really interesting again about biden is that biden is taking a candidate obama who was entirely future looking and occupying that space in a political campaign in a political ethos that is entirely backward looking that's really that's a really interesting yeah i like that i like that that's good also i want to believe that i'm also very forward looking in my politics but there's something about just the move that biden made that hooked me like don't worry we're going to go back to a pre trump time And I know it's a fiction and I know it's completely wrongheaded, but there is this kind of allure to just saying, okay, we're just going to blot those four years out Mm -hmm. because they were so brutal and so traumatizing. And we're just going to go backwards and just pick up and move forward, which is, of course, impossible. But I really find myself having to remind myself not to fall for it. this reminds me of is the semi-recent debate about the Dr. Seuss banning, because I think that Dr. Seuss literature is a, a body of literature, which makes me feel very nostalgic. It was a fundamental part of my childhood. I have warm memories about growing as a young child uh, along with or alongside Dr. Seuss books. And when I go back and look at the problematic Dr. Seuss texts that have recently been discontinued by the publisher, I go back and I still feel that nostalgia, but that nostalgia is about a lot of things that are not politics. Now, when I go back and look at them, I'm like, oh God, these are horrible. Just to use an example, one of the books that's been discontinued is If I Ran the Zoo. And one of the reasons that it's discontinued is because it has these really horribly racist figures of both Asian people and Africans in the book. And I, of course, forgotten about it because when was the last time I actually looked at a Dr. Seuss book? But this is the thing is that I think that what we see in the conservative party today and their rage about the discontinuance of these books is that their politics is also nostalgic, right? So that they think that all of these things can be tied up And not that you can have affection for things that are in your childhood that are no longer a part of your politics and that you absolutely do not want to be a part of the future politics that you're helping to create or bring about. And I I love how the Fox News move has been, hey, Gen Xers, don't you feel bad about this too? The Zoomers and Millennials are ruining your childhood as well. So why don't we just focus on the kind of nostalgic purity of these works and just ignore the the racist, problematic aspects of them? Because you don't want to lose that, do you? 
This makes me realize maybe my issue is that the Zoomers have already ruined it for me because I had to raise them. <laughs> and so I read the books to them. It's true. I, I mean, was thinking, I yeah. was thinking Lee was like, when's the last time I read that? I was like, I read that to my kids. Oh, and thinking, I read it oh. like, not that one. But I, I do think that because I had had to contend with this when I was reading them to my own kids, like it didn't strike me as anything that weird to do. I had already processed, you know, what's the valuable part of these experiences that I think really can be preserved, can be carried on can form parts of new traditions without sort of having to carry on the, the problematic aspects. But that was all premised on having, as an adult, already critically engaged with that. I think one of the interesting things about conservative politics right now, and, and something that I think is maybe worth talking about, is we often talk about this in the context of a digital divide, too. We're used to a world in which we're awash in the ability to access the past. And... It seems to me that part of the, the way in which this nostalgia is being motivated in explicitly resentful ways right now has to do with the fact that it's not that people are forgetting the past. Oh, you know, you, young whippersnappers don't know what's going on in the past. It's that they can critically engage in the past without this bypass through the gauzy, filtered, Lee used the, used the word of forgetting those pages, right? The archive preserves them in all their ugliness. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think that all nostalgia always is in some part a remembering and in some part a creation. And because younger generations can go back and look at the things that we thought we remembered one way and they could say to us, no, you remembered it wrong. It wasn't that way, (laughs) you know, that this is absolutely something that is brand new in human experience. Which makes me wonder what is nostalgia going to look like for Gen Z, especially, and the millennials certainly, but definitely Gen Z, where it's going to be everything is already present and easily accessible and you don't have to go find these things and get the VHS and get the book off the bookshelf, but it's just right there. You can click and see everything from your past. And I just wonder how that might affect their feelings of nostalgia. Nothing is ever forgotten. So you don't get to recreate your version That's right. of it. You know, it shows up in your memories on your timeline exactly as it was. I want to switch gears a little bit here and maybe get into some of the more philosophical ideas of what nostalgia is, because this is actually why I wanted to even have this conversation in the first place. I'm absolutely fascinated by philosophies of nostalgia and philosophies that use nostalgia. And I think that's probably because I do a lot of Hegel. And I think that Hegel (laughs) is largely just a nostalgic philosopher. I mean, this entire recuperation of the past as necessary in order to see where we are. And then when you look to the future, he's sort of like, I don't know, we'll see. So it's sort of this entire construction of the history of philosophy as this beautiful past leading up to the present, but then who knows where it's going to go. Is it going anywhere? I thought that according to Hegel, history ends in 19th century Germany. Yeah, it's kind of weird, you know, (laughs) that's where all the racist stuff comes in. And he's like, maybe it'll be in America and the African slave trade. And maybe that's where we're going to see spirit go. And that's where you're just like, no, that's what happens when nostalgia totally poisons (laughs) the future. It's just like, shh, don't, please don't do that. Stop Um, talking now. Stop talking now, please. Gay org, hush. That's right. For me, the most interesting on the idea of nostalgia is Camus. And I think that the myth of Sisyphus is really where he talks about nostalgia all 
through the entire series of essays. You're blowing my mind right now. I, I, really, I have no memory of this. I yeah. know. Well, I'm about to construct a nostalgic memory for you <laughs> <laughs> that you can then rely on to feel really sad about in the future. No, he actually defines the absurd as the kind of contradiction between this sort of desire for unity and wholeness and sense, which he specifically says is nostalgia. This sort of like, oh, back when things made sense and were whole and we belonged, even says it's like this Parmenidean one Mm -hmm. and the fact that the world doesn't care and is inherently meaningless. And so he says the absurd is like lucid reason noting its limits and those limits Mm -hmm. Are thought being wrapped up in this nostalgia for something that doesn't exist, which is mainly meaning and sense and even cooler. And maybe you all will just let me just have this moment because I love the myth of Sisyphus so much. Me and every other 18 year old boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I always think of you. (laughs) So the myth of Sisyphus essays are based on the myth itself where Sisyphus loved life so much that he refused to actually go to Hades and die. And so the gods punished him by making him roll the rock up and have it come down and roll the rock up for eternity. Mm -hmm. And Camus says that the rock is nostalgia. It's the nostalgia for the life that he had to live. I know. So Whoa. will you? My mind is. So literally- I just literally did the mind blown on. Will, on I know. <laughs> I know. How, can I, how did I never Can read I just this? read it to you? I mean, I, read I know. It, just but... pretend. Right, I just Please I just do. pulled this from my briefcase. Hold on. I'm, gonna, I'm getting my cookies in. <laughs> I'm sticking with the wine. All right. <laughs> All right. When the images of earth cling too tightly to memory, when the call of happiness becomes too insistent, it happens that melancholy rises in man's heart. This is the rock's victory. This is the rock itself. The boundless grief is too heavy to bear. These are our nights of Gethsemane. So, okay, wait, wait, wait. So if this is right, which is, is, you're blowing me away right now, seriously. So the rock is nostalgia. Yeah. Which means that it's Sisyphus's attachment to his past life that is forcing him. It's not the gods, which is hilarious, right? Because remember, Sisyphus, Sisyphus is in the underworld because he kept on tricking Zeus out of death. And so now the point is Zeus is like, haha, jokes on you. Let's let you relive your life over and over and over again until it's nothing but tedium. That's right. You've also blown my mind. But now this also makes me completely reevaluate the ending where we are asked to imagine Sisyphus happy. Well, I think the whole point is that the absurd is the contradiction between this nostalgia for wholeness and the meaninglessness of the world. And so it can't just be the rock. It can't just be him being lost in this past life that he can no longer be a part of because he's dead. It's also the embracing that this is what he has. This is his rock. And so he is happy because he doesn't just succumb to this nostalgia for a past life. I don't know, though, because this makes me now think that the story is much more conservative in the way that we were just describing conservative. (gasps) Than I had ever seen it How before. So? Because I was thinking these, I'm very confused. Well, because, I was thinking the exact opposite. But go ahead, yeah. That's the absurd. That's the contradiction. <laughs> Lee, you're first. <laughs> well, because 
if the rock itself is nostalgia and what nostalgia is, is our manufacturing of a memory that never actually was present, but enables us to make sense of our past, our present, and our future as some kind of a meaningful whole. And that is Sisyphus's so-called punishment. But we have to imagine that Sisyphus ultimately is happy and engaging in this project. Then it does seem like that is, I guess, I'm just what I said, exactly conservative in the way that we just described it, which is that there's a sense in which this attachment to nostalgia because maybe it's the only kind of meaning that we can make in our lives, however absurd or punishing that project might be, that you have to learn how to be happy doing that. And that's that does seem conservative to me. So, yeah, I mean, I think the question would be, we would have to figure out what revolt still means here. Because remember, Sisyphus is happy... But he's also revolting against the rock going up. He's revolting. I don't know against what, right? That's part of the question. So I'm now thinking about this back with Biden. My political despair is probably at its highest right now, even though things aren't so bad, precisely because I feel like I'm seeing really revolutionary possibilities escaping and never coming back. And the fact that things are fine or maybe are going to be somewhat fine is an incredible relief. But as somebody who really does believe in a much more revolutionary politics, like, it's heartbreaking. And, and it's funny, you know, when we were talking about your hope for Obama, Lee, you and I shared that. Like, we talked a lot about Obama. And I think we both got heartbroken by Obama. When I, I remember we the Obama, did. Yeah. We were all heartbroken by Yeah. Him. So when I remember the Obama presidency, I don't have nostalgia. I have the memory of heartbreak, right? So when I hear Sisyphus saying, I still have to be happy, it's the only forms you're going to get are the forms that you've already encountered. You can't change that fact just because you want to. But the revolt is to find a way to live while challenging that, even though that's the case. So it's not quietism, it's despairing resistance. Happiness and despairing resistance. I like this because the idea is that Sisyphus is in revolt. And he's in revolt of the gods saying that this is a punishment. And so he says, I'm going to, to own it and make it mine. And so it's because it's my, my punishment, I guess. So it's not a punishment. But you're talking more in the sense of revolt as in political revolt, which is in grave danger of being put completely to sleep. I mean, as bad as the Trump years were, there was still yeah. a sense of we don't like this story of nostalgia for this racist, hideous past that in some ways existed, but only existed for the benefit of a very few and really was devastating for everybody else. And so therefore is not a past to return to. So maybe we can envision new futures because we reject that nostalgia for the past. But now there's kind of this soporific effect of, well, it's okay now. You're gonna get the vaccine. <laughs> you got a stimulus check. And everything's just going to go back to normal. Back to brunch. Back to brunch. I don't know. I mean, I think that, and I'm just spitballing here because, again, Shannon just blew my mind. and I've never really thought about the story this way. But my understanding of the story was that the revolt, in just simple terms of the plot, was that he doesn't sit at the bottom of the hill after he discovers that he's just going to keep having to push it back up the hill again, but he continues to push it back up the hill. So the revolt is against the absurdity. And it seems like what he does, instead of embracing the absurdity in the kind of future-looking sense, is attach himself to nostalgia, is to make the rock itself meaningful, which, of course, is not really a 
revolt against the absurdity as much as it is a kind of, to use Ammon's term, a sort of quietude, a kind of acquiescence to the absurdity, but in an attachment to nostalgia. But the nostalgia is the rock, right? That's the victory of the rock. And the rock isn't supposed to be the one that wins. It's supposed to be Sisyphus that wins. So nostalgia is the weight of the past pulling us backwards instead of living in the now, in the present, and perhaps in what we were just talking about, envisioning different futures. So but that would, that's that the revolt make- is against yeah. the rock. But that would make sense if the rock was the past and not nostalgia, because nostalgia is not the past. Nostalgia is a project that we it's invi- a pull you know. towards the past, though. I mean, I, it is definitely a pull of the past, whether or not that past existed. I mean, sometimes the past does exist. If you have nostalgia for a trip you took or a relationship you had or a dog you had from the past, I mean, that really existed. It's just not in the way that you fantasize it does in the present. I suppose maybe that's what I want to take issue with, is that I don't think nostalgia is about the past. I think nostalgia is entirely about the present because the referent is not the past. The referent is the present memory of an origin that never was. Well, so, I mean, sticking sort of with phenomenological tradition here, that the present is this co-production through anticipation of of a future and memory about a past. You're pointing out it's this domination of forms of past production on present possibilities for meaning. What would Derrida say about this? (laughs) Well, he has a word for this. What is it? Hauntology. Hauntology. (laughs) No, I really think that we're talking around this idea in Derrida, and I know that you both absolutely heart Derrida. And so I really want to talk about this because I think what little I understand of the concept is that it's saying that we are haunted by a past that is no more and may have never been and a future that is not yet and may never be. And that ghost-like experience that we're talking about, and I think plays off of what Lee was just saying about, it's not really about the past. If I recall correctly, the book where hauntology And because my French has been made fun of before, and that's going to be a repeat recurrent theme, we'll get nostalgic for at some point. Uh, You know, so the (laughs) the key is that in in French, I guess, hauntology and ontology are both pronounced ontologie. I'm sorry to French people in advance here, right? Philosophy um, Matters will really appreciate the fact that you pronounced it properly. (laughs) That's right. I did not do it properly, I'm sure, is what I'll learn. (laughs) But anyway, it shows up first, if I recall correctly, in Spectres of Marx. It only and shows up in Spectres of Marx. That's right, because then it's taken up by other people more. You know, Spectres of Marx is not really a nostalgic text at all. It's being written at, at 92, I think, right when supposedly liberal democracy has triumphed. And Derrida, who has not been heavily associated with the Marxist left at this point, are from joining in this triumph. And it's explicitly in the Hegelian model, you know, Fukuyama is claiming that Every mode of production from now on is going to be some sort of version of liberal democracy. And Derrida appeals to the specter in two ways. One is whether or not to sort of, you know, this this continuation of the Marxian tradition. When Marx says there's a specter haunting Europe, what does he mean by that? Is the specter still here? But it's also a demand for an absolutely new justice. And the way that figures into this idea of haunting is through the figure of Hamlet. So this ghost shows up at the beginning of the story. And the question is, is this really the ghost of Hamlet's father? In other words, is this the nostalgic ghost? Or is it a ghost which has come to announce a wholly other future? And Derrida leaves that open-ended. 
I think that when I'm reading Sisyphus, now that now that I'm rereading Sisyphus, like rewriting it in my head as we go here, it seems to me that the revolt is basically in saying, even if the only thing I'm given, even if Reagan and Bush and Clinton and Thatcher have conspired to destroy world politics for the next 30 years, and Clinton is going to come and laugh over his grave, and even if that's the only thing that you, Ammon, personally, are going to be able to live your whole life, right, is this nonsensical neoliberalism, and it's going to suck every single time there's a new election, you can still hope and you can still fight for a genuinely revolutionary moment even though you know it's never going to come, even though it's going to be Harris in 28 and then Buttigieg in 34. <laughs> and these, 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 they're going to just dominate for forever. I love this. I, I think yeah. the absurd. That's yes, the absurd. that's the absurd. But I think that Ammon's explanation there is also really helpful in tying these two operative moves in Derrida's Corpus one of the ghost, which this is the kind of funny thing about the ghost is that the ghost was never present. So when people say the ghost returned, well, obviously the ghost didn't return because you know yeah. the ghost is a memory and a present apparition of something that was real, but the ghost is not something that existed in the past. So a kind of parallel between the ghost, which is an operation of the present in relation to the past, and the Derrida's avenir, the to come, which is also, of course, never present. It's always just what is to come. So it's an operation of the future, but in the present. I think that this is something, of course, that Derrida works out through all of his texts, is that we're always dealing with traces and remainders and margins and possibilities and undecidables. And so in that sense, both nostalgia and hope are of a type. They're ways of constructing meaning in relation to the past and in relation to the future. I think what might be interesting to talk about is the difference between those two concepts philosophically, nostalgia and hope. Hmm. I mean, I always think of them in the kind of phenomenological tradition of temporality and Husserlian inner time consciousness. And so you have the present moment of attention, but you are always having retention of the past, the immediate past more immediately. And then it just sort of trails off like the comet's tail and then the pro tension into the future. And so I think that when I try to understand nostalgia and hope, which are not always, sometimes they're necessary and good, but oftentimes very problematic because they annihilate the present and you get lost in something that's not right there. I think that instead of it sort of being like an anticipation and a remembrance, they become fixed poles. There is something in the past that I am nostalgic about, and there is something in the future that I am working towards that is clear and unchanging, and that's where you get into trouble. Yeah, I would almost agree with that, except for that I think that, (laughs) again, to sort of use the terminology that we've been using so far, is that the conservative impulse is to see nostalgia as self-justifying because it understands nostalgia as referencing something, as you just said, that was in the past, something real and true that was in the past. I think even conservatives, when they talk about hope, don't talk about it as something self-justifying. They talk about it as something that is a project in which we have to engage, that there's nothing definitely out there in the future that is real and is true, 
that when we hope we're hoping for now. Okay. I'm what about the rapture? I'm leaving out obviously religious (laughs) versions like here, you know, I mean, Paul defines hope as the assurance of things not seen. So it feels like an assurance, but it's not an assurance in reference to something that you believe is actually there and is actually yeah. real. And what actually about if, but don't you think that there is an element in that conservative nostalgia of this long lost time that is precisely what is hoped for? That we can take that and not just miss it, but transplant it as the yeah. future goal. I totally agree with that. And I think the the problem is that the sort of self-justifying understanding of nostalgia on the conservative view because it doesn't understand the nostalgia itself as a hope and not a remembrance is the problem. So that's how it's self-justifying. To bounce this back in in who's relaxing more in Heidegger. So I am going to cite myself and I'm really sorry. I'm going to try not to do that very often, but I've tried to argue before that there are operative in Heidegger and that this is what Derrida really picks up on precisely in the stuff that we're talking about, two radically different modes of futurity. And and the one that we're we're calling hope here has nothing to do with our projects. It's entirely a deconstructing force, even in the Heideggerian corpus. The problem, of course, is that we can only ever recognize that by reference to what we think we're hoping for. You know, Kierkegaard, following on Paul, again, in religious faith, makes this very explicit. We'll only ever have hope for things that we think we can understand, right? Abraham cannot but hope that somehow he'll retain his son, for example. But the structure of hope has to be for the obliteration of those forms. And so, yeah, even though the rock's going to roll back down the hill, Sisyphus has to continue to revolt against the rock. But the only way to do that is by continually rolling the rock up the hill, which looks a lot like reinstantiating the dominance of nostalgia on the future. And so there's this impossible double bind. love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the Hotel Bar Sessions hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness. Ammon is at Ideasman PhD. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. So that was a great conversation about the philosophical aspects and political aspects of nostalgia. But I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about nostalgia in culture and art. We got a wonderful submission from Michael Norton about the nostalgia in 80s music. Let's take a listen. Nostalgia, it's more than just the the suffering born from the desire to return to something or someplace. I think the thing that you want to return to in nostalgia is always going to be an illusion or a wish or something like that. It's never the thing as you experienced it. And often it's a thing that you didn't experience or that you had no way to experience. And that's why I think a lot of nostalgia tends to be for a time or a place just before our memories or just before our lived experience or at least when we were very young and didn't really have full grasp of everything that was going on around us. So to use an example, 
I have a certain kind of nostalgia for 80s things, for sort of 80s culture and particularly 80s music. I know Lee is going to cringe at that. And 80s nostalgia culture has been heavily marketed for a while now to, I'd say, younger Gen Xers and older millennials, people who are middle-aged right now, like about my age. That works because, I'll take myself, I was in grade school throughout the 80s. And the things that I get nostalgic about from that time period aren't things that I directly experienced at the time. They are things that I suppose I have a vague awareness of or that I have an idea idea of broadly from a kind of vague experience. And I think that's something that's key to nostalgia. Here's one example of a very specific thing that I have a more direct experience of being nostalgic about. And I think this speaks to a different aspect of nostalgia. I would say I'm nostalgic about making cassette mixtapes or compilation tapes, not mixtapes in the current sense of here's a roughly produced album that I'm dropping suddenly, but like a, <laughs> a combination of songs that you make for yourself or you make uh, especially for someone else but actually doing that on cassette like with a boom box and figuring out like how much time you have on each side and hitting the pause button and all of that and the thing is i think this works as nostalgia because firstly that's actually a long and laborious process <laughs> to do that with a cassette tape something that we could do much easier with cds and especially streaming playlists now and so the work of it imbues it with a certain kind of meaning and i think that's something to be nostalgic about. But also, it's not like I couldn't do that now. I can still do that. I have a tape deck. I have a, a, a stereo setup where I could do exactly that, but I don't. And why don't I? Because it's not like part of our culture anymore. It's not like a thing that people do. And so I think if I use it as an example of something that I'm nostalgic about, what I'm nostalgic about is not making mixtapes. I'm actually more nostalgic about the culture in which people made mixtapes, which again, as an object of nostalgia is probably <laughs> something that I'm romanticizing or wishing were a particular kind of way more than it actually was. Lee, did you cringe at the 80s reference? I, I did. I don't, I just don't get the, oh, yes. None I of just it? Don't get, you don't I get mean, any nostalgia for the 80s? I mean, I suppose some of it I get. It is not my favorite decade of music. It is 100% my least favorite decade of fashion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like You got Margaret say. Thatcher, I mean, and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I'm nostalgic about. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, though, I, I love his example of mixtapes. That was such a huge part of my childhood, junior high, high school right. yeah. uh, time. I do think that he does describe exactly what is nostalgic about. I don't have a boombox anymore, unfortunately, but I think that he does accurately describe what I'm nostalgic about, which is the effort and the care and the time it took into making that and also a world in which that was meaningful. Yeah, so I actually really like what he says at the end there about, well, I could do it now. We could go get our Rubik's Cubes and we could sort of relive our past in this way. But most of us don't do that because even though we might be nostalgic for these kinds of practices and games and entertainment, we don't really want to spend our time doing it. We just want to miss it and feel bad that it's not here anymore. Oh, speaking of things that we're nostalgic about, check out this sound. Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> That was before I had a cell phone and that thing would be going off on people's pockets and I would be like, oh, 
That is so annoying. People are so rude that they have to pull their phones out in public and answer them. I can honestly say that now when I hear Zoomers who, you know, ironically, I don't know, nostalgically have that as their (laughs) ringtone, I smile. I hear that sound and I'm just like, aww. (laughs) So actually, this this whole 80s aesthetic thing I think is really interesting. Have either of you read Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism? No. It's It's a wonky book. It's problematic in some ways. I mean, it's 10 years old now, but Mm. how basically this kind of reincorporation of the nostalgia for the past, especially things like the past from the 80s and even the 90s, has become so all-consuming by the capitalist entertainment complex that it's prohibiting and preventing really new forms of thinking and entertainment and music from happening. And I mean, it sometimes sounds a little like get off my lawn, old fart. Things just can't be new anymore like they once were when Kurt Cobain was singing. But I also am kind of intrigued by just the machine of recycling the 80s right now, which will then become the machine of recycling the 90s. And I know that that's always how these things go generationally, but do you think there's anything different about the way that nostalgia has been co-opted by capitalism now than we've seen in the past? I think that the reason that we see so much recycling of 80s and 90s nostalgia right now is because all of us are Gen Xers and we're the ones with the money right now. Uh, I mean, not, not <laughs> us in particular. Sorry. Check out our I'm Patreon down. link below. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Everybody can go fun Lee. So let me just say, yeah, not us in particular, but you know, we're in the yeah. demographic. One thing that I think is really interesting is given the statistics that we're seeing now about millennials and Zoomers, just in terms of their economic progress or lack thereof and their job prospects and the levels of unemployment that they have right now. And that's obviously only been compounded in the last year and the debt that they're beginning their lives with. I'm really curious whether or not when they're 40, they will see Mm -hmm. media digging up nostalgia for them in the way that we've seen media digging up nostalgia for us and the way in which when I was a kid, I watched a lot of stuff that was clearly targeted at my parents' nostalgia years. Oh, um, definitely. I mean, of course yeah. they will because it's capitalism and there's money to be made by no, but, no, but what I'm saying is people. No, but what I'm saying is, is that they won't be in the money in the way that we Uh, have been. We, we are at our age and our parents were roughly at our age and their parents were roughly at their age. Yeah. I think that one thing that we'll see, uh, this is going on a limb, but, but some of them will be in the money, right? I think that that's going to be a crucial thing. So inequality is driving a smaller and smaller demographic. And so I think that while it's going to be true that on the whole millennials and zoomers have much worse economic prospects, that's not true of all of them. So I do wonder if what we'll see along with that is rises of forms of nostalgia. And I actually think we already see this, but that's a longer story. Rises of forms of nostalgia that completely eliminate and underwrite any sort of economic realities that took place with that, any discussion of economic inequality. Right. Which may or may not be a necessary feature of any nostalgia. But so, yeah, so things will get marketed to the rich millennials, whatever traits they have. But the flip side of that, Lee, which I do agree with you on, is that people are living longer and people are holding on to their money for longer. So generational transfers of wealth are going to happen slower and slower, which means we're never going to get over this fucking 60s iron nostalgia. It's never going to leave us. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think that there's still in our culture a lot of nostalgia marketing to my parents, boomers. Right. And that's because, I mean, my parents are in their 60s, but they, as they say, 60 is the new 40. And honestly, my mother looks like she could be in her late 40s, really. And as we get older and we stay healthier as we get older, I, I just wonder whether or not, just to get back to Shannon's point here, whether or not the sort of capitalist marketing strategy of nostalgia is going to get elongated in a way so that we get nostalgia marketing in film and music and TV and commercials, et cetera, well into our 70s, but that they don't actually start marketing to you until you're 50 because of these kind of changes that we are seeing in the young economic life of millennials and Zoomers. So- would you then say that there is something different about the way nostalgia is currently being used in culture? It's much easier to market nostalgia now because exactly as Ammon said before, we have direct access to all of the actual images, the actual sounds, yeah, you know. That's so the difference. It, it's much easier for us. It's much easier to make new commercials that actually show us what we actually saw, what we actually heard, and supposedly recreate what we actually felt when we were kind of in our prime. I mean, I currently am in my prime. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm, st I'm, I st I'm still not there. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that you're right. I think the sort of ready at hand of every possible thing that any generation had a relationship to when they were younger, whether that's last year or 10 years ago or 50 years ago, makes it so thorough in the way that it can be pinged, the way that nostalgic feelings can be delved into and exploited. And so in that sense, this kind of perpetual nostalgia is really omnipresent. I guess here's the, pu the puzzle to me that though, is like if, if what we're saying is right and bouncing back on your point, Lee, of the archive being so crucial to this, one would suspect, or at least there would be this possibility, that rather than evoking nostalgia, when these things remain omnipresent, and omnipresent in much more well-preserved ways than they used to be, that one would be able to have a critical relationship to their own past. Now, I, I say one would hope, because I, I agree with you guys that that does not seem to be the case. Yeah, I wonder whether or not the time between actual experiences and the feeling of nostalgia about those experiences and the critical evaluation of that feeling of nostalgia <laughs> will be compressed. So this yes. is oh. that's what I'm of, getting at. Yes, yes, so, yes. So this is kind of opposite of what I said a minute ago about the capitalist marketing of nostalgia, which I do think will become elongated. But I think that th what I just described, the sort of feeling of nostalgia and the critical evaluation of that feeling is actually going to become quite compressed. And I have an example of this. So a couple of years ago, I had a group of students do a final project on nostalgia. And the whole project was about vines, which are like, you know, <laughs> so these are 20, 22 year olds. They were seniors doing something about when they were 15, right? So not even a decade old. They clearly had these nostalgic feelings about vines. So this is 
prior to TikTok. So maybe this was three years ago. I mean, TikTok is this sort of recreation of Vine. But they were very obviously nostalgic about it. Everyone in the audience that watched this presentation was super nostalgic about it. But they also had a really clear critical analysis of mm. what vines were, why they were important. And I thought, oh, my God, that's not like, how, how do you have nostalgia about something that was like five years old? So how does that critical capacity not change what nostalgia is? If I don't have the illusion that my childhood wasn't manufactured by capitalism, if I'm aware of the way in which the the cultural forms that I consumed were given to me by a market that only wanted to sell me shit, even if I happen to still like it, shouldn't that be sufficient to break that strong political power that you guys are talking about? Now, I'm asking this question rhetorically, and I, I, to be clear, I've already said that I'm in despair about all of this, but I don't understand why it's not sufficient. I wonder if we couldn't maybe ask the question about whether there isn't something valuable about nostalgia. I think oftentimes when we talk about nostalgia, it's sort of like, oh, it's problematic. Even the ways we've talked about it right now, right? It creates these false origins. It allows people to hold on to something that is no longer rather than look to the future of what could be. It's easily co-opted by capitalism and, and made into things to sell right back to us that, as you point out, Ammon, we don't really have the ability to critically evaluate, even though we should. And it should be easy for us, especially those of us who know better to do so. But I wonder if there isn't something something positive about nostalgia. Please be sure to check out our website at hotelbarpodcast.com and be sure to click on the interactive page each week where we post questions about topics to be covered in the upcoming episodes. You listen to us. We want to hear from you. And you may even hear your comment or story on air. So we got another listener, Martha, sent in a clip about something a little bit more positive in feelings of nostalgia that I wonder we if we could take a listen to and then continue this conversation. So nostalgia for me are um, these hearkening backs to times where I felt valued um, by like your parents or your grandparents, somebody in your life you look up to, um, like your mom teaching you how to make strawberry jam or my dad introducing me to one of his favorite Pink Floyd records, you know. It's like that bonding, those moments of... um, feeling valued, feeling special, feeling loved. And the person's not doing it for any other reason than just to have that moment with you. And it's, it's wonderful, it's unique, and it's something you always carry with you. And I also think that we look for instances of simplicity in our lives, you know, uh, freedoms to run around the neighborhood on our bikes and, you know, not wear shoes while we're doing so. Things like that. Um, You know, I think if all you need to do is just talk to a psychologist and they'll tell you that their patients are just looking for those moments of feeling valued and feeling free of all those stresses of life. And I think that, um, you know, Epicurus had it right when he was teaching us that we should be living a life free of of, uh, fear and pain. Makes sense to me, especially in in a nostalgic sense. That's what we want. We want those 
warm, loved moments, and um, they're unhindered with the stresses of the outside world, and nothing like that can touch those, and those are kind of sacred in a way. So I think that Martha raises some interesting points there, which is that sometimes nostalgia is actually good. It can ground us. It can recall things that we may want to recall, bring back people who may not be here anymore or experiences that we don't have anymore. And it can make our experience of our world richer not necessarily just create false origins that produce negative impacts. I 100% agree with you that it definitely can make us feel good and it definitely can make our lives richer. I disagree that it isn't still creating false. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, all memory. memory. And so I would say that nostalgia is good only in as much as it is coupled with a critical awareness of the fact that it's a reconstruction of the past that has motivations that are located in the present. What about you, Ammon? Do you think that there's a positive aspect to nostalgia? Yeah, I mean, after I was just harshing on it so much, you know, Martha's example, I think, which is really lovely, does seem to me... And, and I'm wondering if, if it, and I don't want it to just be this, but I'm wondering if it's as simple as saying it's the political use of nostalgia, which is problematic. And that in our personal lives, like, yeah, we, we miss things. We want to reconstruct things we miss. And that's an important part of how we put things together. Is it just as simple as that those are very private and personal and that it's when they become collective that it becomes problematic? Maybe. I mean, I think it can probably also be problematic if it's private and personal because we can then get lost That's in an true. idealized past that never was uh, as a way of avoiding living in the present and the future. Yeah. It becomes politically problematic when it then becomes a, a sort of ideological drive. But back to Lee's point about maintaining this critical distance, if I can sort of look back at the way in which I've been formed and very happy moments within that... Yeah, I mean, I think that that can be really wonderful. Are there th things that evoke that kind of nostalgia for you guys? I personally like literature and philosophy that deals with these themes, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. And I think it allows you to take an aesthetic and critical orientation to the question of nostalgia. So, for example, one of the books I really like to teach is The Tale of Genji. This is an incredible work from the 11th century, and it's about court life and high in Japan. And it plays on this theme of mono no aware, which is basically a kind of sadness of things that change. So all throughout the tale of Genji, there's, oh, this person is so beautiful that they're not long for this world, or even the, the actual cherry blossoms and the ephemera of nature. And it has a very nostalgic feeling to it, but only insofar as it's an appreciation for the temporariness of the world and of, and of life. I mean, that may not be exactly the question you're asking because you just might be like, do the Muppets make me nostalgic? And the answer to that is obviously yes. But, <laughs> but I like to look at works of literature or even Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and the wife of Bath, when she starts her story, she talks about how there used to be fairies in the world. And then the clergy comes in like dust motes and just scares away all the fairies. And so now we just have this completely magicless world. The and clergy it's and Lee. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, and Lee. Right, this sort of, 
and what's nice about it is it's like, yeah, maybe she's being nostalgic for King Arthur's court, but it's the criticism of religion and yeah. the dominance of religion and the way that it's squashing the fun of existence. So I like those kinds of things because they both play on nostalgia and themes of nostalgia, but without leaving you on the islands mm-hmm. of nostalgia. I would say for my part that I think that the time in my life that I am most nostalgic about were my grad school years. Both of you are obviously a part of that. However, I am at a time in my life where I have a very realistic, critical appraisal of how (laughs) good and not good that life was. I do not want to go back to time before smartphones, which is when we were in graduate school. And I don't want to go back to feeling insecure and like I was scrambling for every little bit of everything that I had. But I do have a nostalgia for that. I like to remember those times and I like even to remember the bad times of them. But again, as I've been saying along as a way of giving meaning to my current life. And honestly, I feel very fortunate that you and I, although the three of us are friends after all of these years, but it does inform a lot of how I relate to you now is that I have a kind of nostalgia about the Shannon and the Ammon that I knew back then and the Shannon and the Ammon that I know now and the relationship that we had back then and the relationship that we have now. And it it gives me hope for the future. (laughs) That's right. What about you, Ammon? Blue Sky. I didn't for a long time let myself watch Big Love for a lot of reasons that we've already explored in other parts of this podcast. (laughs) And when I finally did last year, during COVID times, like it made me and in, in living in I hate the weather of Ohio. This is I don't want to criticize Ohio too much, but I hate the weather here so oh, much. Oh, that's okay. You can Yeah. And the blue skies in Big Love in Utah. And and again, like I'm I have no illusions about what Utah was when I was growing up, what Utah can still be, why I left the Mormon faith. But when I see the blue skies and I can like smell the pine wood when they're going to the weird polygamous compounds. To be clear, I did not grow up on a weird polygamous compound. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I can remember the smell of the pine in the mountains where they're going. And that matters more than all the reasons I left. Aw. I love that. The sky isn't always so blue, though. We have a lot of information. So I don't know know if that makes you feel any better, but those blue skies are rarer and rarer. Lee, do me one favor. I want to hear the dot matrix. Oh, I have so many fond memories of this sound. I will tell you about that sound. A really funny story that I heard about one of my professors at University of Memphis. And I'm not going to say his name because I don't know if this is a true story or not. But (laughs) the story was, so this is back in the time when people used to print out their papers on dot matrix printers, which for those of you who are familiar with these meant that after you printed it out, you had to sort of peel off the sides and then peel apart the perforations of every single page. Anyway, he had these very strict page limits on his papers that he would assign for his seminars and whatever it was, like 15 pages. But apparently somebody wrote this 25-page paper for one of his seminars, turned it in, and had not even separated the perforations of the <laughs> of the dot matrix paper that they had printed out. They just handed it in. And apparently right there in the seminar, he counted out 15 pages, tore it off of the perforation, and then threw the rest <laughs> of the trash. <laughs> 
Okay, so I'm kind of nostalgic also about old professor stories like that. Yeah, like they, yeah. <laughs> they would like old school professors yeah, that you get away with that, <laughs> right? And there's Love nothing it. problematic about those old school professors. Oh, of course not. So that was, it's fine. That was an idyllic time. Being publicly humiliated in front of all of your classmates is such no, that's a fine. Joy. As your professor, as your professor smokes in the class. Right. <laughs> well, I'm already nostalgic for the time that we had together when we were but young pups in graduate school. But I'm also glad that we are still friends in the present and hopeful in the good sense that we will continue to be friends into the future as we start the revolution. <laughs> so uh, what are we going to talk about next time? Speaking of the future. So next time we're actually going to be talking about apocalypses, plural. So I'm going to be taking the lead on the next episode. And I just want to tell everyone this topic was motivated by the fact that I became more and more aware over the last several years that my students, in my view, have a really apocalyptic sense of their own futures and their own lives. And for very good reasons, environmental, political, biological, technological and so we're going to talk about the many and very different ways that the end might arrive. So I'm really looking forward to that. Me too. Nice. Okay, you guys, it looks like we've gotten once again last call at the hotel bar. So I will catch you next time to talk about our impending doom. See you then. Looking forward to it. Bye, y'all. <laughs>